Peter Oakes. I teach New Testament at the University of Manchester. In the New Testament texts, one of the questions that they're frequently dealing with is, what should followers of Jesus do about Jewish law? By Jewish law, I mean the set of rules found in Israel's scriptures, what Christians called the Old Testament. For instance, should Christians adopt the Jewish practice of circumcising baby boys? This kind of question is, in principle, important for all the books in the New Testament. These books were written over a period when the Jesus movement went from being made up entirely of Jews, such as Jesus and Paul, to being made mainly up of Gentiles, i.e. people who were not Jews. What range of views about Jewish law do we see in New Testament texts? Do they all take the same view or different ones? What legal issues are the texts interested in? We'll consider a sample of evidence from a range of the New Testament texts that are in the form of letters. Then we'll look at the four Gospels and Acts. Finally, we'll think about three types of explanation that seem to me to be useful when considering how Jewish law is handled in the New Testament. So first, law in New Testament letters. Paul's earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians and Galatians, have contrasting degrees of interest in the law. 1 Thessalonians says little about the law, but does set up some basic issues. The Thessalonians are described as having turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus. They're presented as Gentiles who have abandoned Greco-Roman religious practice to worship Israel's God instead, but that they do this in a variant form of worship centred on beliefs about Jesus. When the letter raises moral issues, it does so in terms that resemble Jewish tradition. The hearers are to act in holiness, not like the Gentiles. However, Paul does not directly cite Jewish law here, and the letter also uses other ethical norms, such as ones to do with living in the end times. For instance, Paul talks about living as children of the day. In Galatians, practice of law is the central issue. Paul writes to oppose people seeking to persuade Gentile Christians to adopt circumcision and some other aspects of Jewish practice, such as calendrical observance. His key response is to present this issue as one of unity. He recalls some events in the Christian community at Antioch, where Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews used to eat together, but this was then threatened by some people's insistence on certain types of law-keeping. Paul then built a chain of argument that culminates with unity in Christ, including the statement, there is no Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul argues that Christ's death and trust in Christ, rather than works of the law, provide the route to righteousness. Paul argues that the real role of the law was to control Israel in the period up until the arrival of Christ. 
Paul also argues that the law is no longer needed ethically because life by the spirit fulfills the moral aims of the law. Paul's later letters reiterate, qualify or further develop the ideas of Galatians. Both similarity and contrast are sharpest in 1 Corinthians. In both Galatians and 1 Corinthians, he actually uses the same phrase. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, i.e. neither circumcision nor lack of circumcision matters. However, whereas in Galatians, this is then contrasted with statements that the things that do matter are faith working through love and a new creation. In 1 Corinthians, the contrasting idea that they should embrace is keeping the commands of God. Paul's letter to the Romans makes points similar to Galatians on righteousness coming through trust in Christ rather than by works of the law. Instead, Paul presents the law as a means of holding the world world accountable to God. However, Romans 7 to 8 tackles law in rather different ways. Paul asks, is the law sin? He answers emphatically, no, the law reveals sin and is holy and spiritual. Although at one point he does imply that the existence of the law provokes sin. Paul thinks that the law can't free a person from the inability to actually do what they judge to be right. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil that I don't want to do. Instead, Paul sees this inability as having been overcome by God sending Christ to deliver people from sin, which now enables the just requirement of the law to be fulfilled in those who walk by the Spirit. He describes this process as being the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, freeing people from the law of sin and death. In Romans 10, Paul calls Christ the telos of the law. The Greek word telos can mean end or goal. Scholars argue about which is the main meaning here, since each leads to partly different interpretations of the law's significance after the arrival of Christ. In Romans 13, Paul lists parts of the Ten Commandments, then asserts that these and other laws can be summed up in the command to love one's neighbour. 2 Corinthians expresses strong polemic against the law. Paul writes about Christian ministry of the new covenant, which is an expression from the book of Jeremiah. Paul contrasts this with the use of the Mount Sinai covenant, which he describes as a ministry of death carved in letters on stones. Beyond Paul's correspondence, other letters take a range of positions on the law. Like 2 Corinthians, Hebrews appeals to Jeremiah's concept of the new covenant. As in 2 Corinthians, the aim is to downgrade the law. Hebrews 7 says, the law perfected nothing. Hebrews describes the second covenant as the new covenant, which has made the first obsolete. What is obsolete and ageing is close to disappearing. However, Hebrews concludes this from quite a different starting point from that of Paul. For Hebrews, the prime interest is in Christ's role as heavenly high priest. 
the law foreshadows Christ in his priestly ministry. But since his priesthood does not fit the Levitical pattern, there must be a change of law. On the other hand, Hebrews can, like Paul, appeal to the authority of Jewish law at various points. In Hebrews 9, the law's requirement for shedding blood if sins are to be forgiven is a key basis for the writer's argument. The letter of James is often seen as a counterpoint to Paul. James praises the perfect law, the law of freedom. Although, like Paul, James stresses the centrality of the command to love your neighbour, he immediately goes on to speak of being judged by the law and the importance of keeping the entire law. In the passage that could be interpreted as antithetic to Paul, James argues that faith without works is dead. He goes so far as to argue that Abraham was justified by works. His offering of Isaac as a sacrifice brought Abraham's faith to completion. Nothing in James's references to the law suggests that allegiance to Christ has changed James's approach to the law from a traditional Jewish one. However, James's religious practice is based on something like house church meetings rather than temple and animal sacrifices. James also shows no interest in ritual purity, which is a central issue in the developing first century pattern of discourse about Jewish life. Even though James strongly endorses the law, comparison with other Jewish texts of the period suggests that his community is living in discontinuity with some common aspects of Jewish religious life under the law. Two, law in the Gospels and Acts. Mark opens his gospel by portraying Jesus's ministry as the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's idea of God bringing about a new exodus in rescuing the Israel of his day an idea also seen in the book of Malachi. This locates the hope of the restoration of Israel in Jesus' mission. This radical recasting of Israel's hope has a specific legal focus in a series of controversies about the Sabbath in Mark 2 to 3. The Pharisees, portrayed as guardians of Israel's legal tradition, oppose Christ's approach to the Sabbath centred on mercy and healing. In Mark 7, they differ over washing prior to eating. Jesus attacks their prioritising of detailed obedience over broader imperatives and declares all foods clean. However, Jesus himself sends a cleansed leper to the priest in fulfilment of the law. Also, in Mark 12, Jesus quotes that Shema from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And quotes the neighbour love command from Leviticus and does both of these in a fairly conventional answer to a question about the greatest commandment. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that anchors Jesus in Israel's history. He then ties Jesus into scripture both typologically and in direct fulfilment of prophecy. At the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ascends the hill like a second Moses, 
preparing to deliver a renewed set of words from God. Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law, and he bans neglect of any detail. Many scholars relate this change of approach between Mark and Matthew to the difference in audience, with Mark's being mainly Gentile and Matthew's considered to be Jewish, either within synagogues or having been separated from them recently. However, the Matthean Jesus does not straightforwardly endorse practice of the law. The antitheses of Matthew 5 each begin, you have heard that it was said, but I say. Some of these appear to internalise or deepen the law, for instance, on adultery. Others appear to qualify it, for instance, on vengeance. Jesus follows this with criticism of what is presented as hypocritical current practice. Some scholars see such critical material representing conflict between the Matthean community and synagogues. For other scholars, it's a matter of competition over interpretation of the law between groups within synagogues, including the followers of Jesus. Another approach to the Matthean material is to link it with Matthew's interest in discipleship. Appearing programmatically at the beginning of Jesus' teaching in the gospel, his proclamation relating to the law must be a significant part of Matthew's vision of what the disciples' life should ideally be like. Luke's version of Jesus' central moral discourse, commonly known as the Sermon on the Plain, does not include the explicit discussions of the law found in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. However, the Lucan passage does effectively pick up the frequent scriptural prophetic message of condemnation of the rich. This is in line with Jesus' programmatic sermon in Nazareth in Luke 4, which not only stands in the prophetic tradition of support for the oppressed, but probably picks up on the law's provision of jubilees, times of release and forgiveness of debts. Comparing Luke with Mark, Luke omits the crucial discussion of law and tradition found in Mark 7, including the declaration of the cleanness of all foods. This issue instead appears in Acts, although in a transformed way. Peter sees a vision in which God declares various unclean animals as fit to eat. But the subsequent interpretation of this defines the vision as a metaphor for the inclusion of Gentiles among God's people. The issue of food laws occurs more directly in Acts 15, in which the major conference at Jerusalem decides that Gentiles need only observe a very limited set of rules, rules similar to some scriptural laws that apply to Gentiles resident in Israel. This list in Acts 15 includes not eating strangled animals and avoiding food offered to idols, but does not require adherence to other scriptural food laws. Scholars usually place John's gospel further down the path of conflict between Jews and Christians than the other gospels especially in view of the note in John 9 about people being expelled from synagogues and some sharp polemic in John 8. John's Jesus is actually more actively observant of the law than the Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels, in that Jesus regularly attends Jerusalem festivals in John. However, 
John's festivals function primarily as occasions for typological comparison with Christ. What Jews were seeking in festival going and legal practice is seen as now available in Christ. A vital element of the setting is that when John probably writes, the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed. The negotiation of life after the temple imposed numerous legal questions for all Jews, including followers of Jesus, and by extension, the Gentile followers of Jesus too. John proposes solutions in which Christ offers what legal institutions previously provided. Three, three key factors in the development of New Testament ideas on the law. There are many possible factors contributing to how New Testament texts deal with law, such as various concepts of law in the Hellenistic world. However, the shape of the New Testament evidence suggests that three factors play particularly vital roles. First, the historical Jesus. The letters that are the earliest extant Christian documents are, as Rudolf Bultmann observed, astonishingly uninterested in passing on traditions about Jesus's teaching and acts, focusing instead on his death and God's act in raising him from the dead. However, F.C. Bauer's argument that the key early Christian ideas about law are fundamentally the product of Paul's apostolic consciousness is considerably overstated. As Richard Burridge argues, what we see in the New Testament letters is an ethic that has strong correspondences with the ethic of Jesus as communicated in all the gospel sources. That ethic represents a commitment to certain types of people and a consequent stance towards the law. The commitment of Jesus was towards the inclusion of the outsider and those who were suffering. This could be seen as a privileging of the aspects of the law that relate to people in those situations. This is not a reading against the law. It represents one of the law's overriding and repeated concerns. However, it is a reading of the law that configures it in a way that is different from the overall appearance of most Jewish texts of the first and second centuries. The earliest strands of Jesus' tradition have relatively little interest in cultic practice and related topics, but considerable interest in inclusion and support. The most probable view is that this stems from Jesus himself. It was later magnified by the dynamics of a movement that included people from beyond Jewish boundaries, but there was almost certainly an initial impetus from the stance of the historical Jesus towards the law. He was law observant, but devoted to a particular agenda within the law. Second, Paul's early ideas. There were other very early Christian thinkers besides Paul, but his letters are the first extant documents. And it does seem likely that he is the origin of some of the distinctive ideas about the law that became characteristic of many later Christian texts. In the post-Easter situation, Paul took something akin to Jesus' inclusive ethic and implied, applied it into predominantly Gentile situations. Paul became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and that his death and resurrection brought to fulfilment the story of God's dealings with Israel, 
including the giving of the law. In particular, Jesus the Messiah initiated the end times in which Isaiah's vision of the incoming of the Gentiles to Zion was coming about. Paul's belief in this fulfilment led him to a very radical stance on the idea that the scriptural love commandment summed up the law. Whereas Jesus and many other Jewish teachers saw loving God and one's neighbour as a summary pointing to the content of the law, Paul saw it as an imperative that ideally shaped communities of Gentiles as Gentiles and Jews as Jews eating together and being together in God's partly present kingdom. In Paul's view, this imperative should override any other legal imperatives that made such eating together problematic. More broadly, although Paul generally supported the continued practice of law by Christian Jews, he argued that God's renewed Jewish and Gentile kingdom was no longer under Israel's law as such. The law had been instrumental in bringing the renewed kingdom to birth, and it continues to be God's word. But now a Christian, having received justification from God, would live a life in the spirit which produced the morally correct life to which the law had pointed. Third, the circumstances of texts. Paul's early ideas are most clearly expressed in Galatians. For Hans Hübner, this letter represents one end of progression. He sees Paul as moving from being rather negative on the law in Galatians to ending up much more positive in Romans. For N.T. Wright, on the other hand, there is much more consistency in Paul's views. The situations of the New Testament books vary and scholars argue about how much difference this makes. Part of the difference between New Testament books relates to their specific circumstances and aims. The handling of the law in 1 Corinthians undoubtedly relates to the long list of problems that Paul perceives in the Corinthian Christian community. A similar connection can be observed in texts that are less explicit about their situation. Luke, for instance, handles the law in ways that are probably connected with what he wants to present to his predominantly non-Jewish target audience. As well as circumstances specific to each book, each book is located at a certain point in a number of interlocking developing histories. There is the history of the Jews in the first century, culminating in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 CE. Particularly at the end of that period, New Testament texts needed to be need to be considered in relation to the dynamics of life and law in the absence of the temple. Another developing historical strand is that of anti-Semitism. For instance, Wolfgang Wiefel considers the rhetoric of Romans to be partly a response to the effects of anti-Semitism in Rome. A third historical strand is the development of the early Jesus movement itself. Many issues in that development relate to, related to interpretation of Jewish law. Some conclusions. Matthew and James each have a rhetoric about the law that looks different from that of Paul or the author of Hebrews. The former, 
emphasized the continuing value of the law for their communities. The latter stressed that the new covenant overrides the old dispensation. However, Paul's teaching does still relate to the moral teaching of the law. Conversely, Matthew and James do appear to handle the law in ways different from most Jewish texts of their day. A key point is that the Christian movement in the New Testament period was both Jew and Gentile. Later Christianity excluded Jewish practice of the law, but in the New Testament this is not yet the case. As Paul declares, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Christian Jews were not to abandon circumcision, just as Christian Gentiles were not to adopt it. The differences between teaching for Christian Jews and teaching for Christian Gentiles provide a key layer of complexity in the picture we've been seeing. However, the tapestry of New Testament texts on the law has some consistent central motifs. One is that Christ and the Christian communities are seen as somehow fulfilling the law. Another is that fellowship between Gentiles and Jews is seen as a key element of God's renewed kingdom. There is also considerable variety of shape and shade in New Testament handling of Jewish law, but there are also strands that bound this complexity together in a sustainable whole. Mm-hmm.